goblins, bugaboos, trolls, boggles, and bugbears. Welcome to Red Dice Diaries RPG Podcast. I'm your host, John, and after the music, we're going to talk about the benefits of using collective terms for various different types of monsters. So, welcome back to the Red Dice Diaries RPG podcast. And as I said before the music, today we're going to talk about collective terms for monsters. And I suppose you might be saying, well, surely a monster's a monster, John. After all, if we're playing D&D, we can crack open the monster manual of our edition of choice. We can point to a goblin. And as long as we're not looking at sort of like different variations on that monstrous theme, we can say, yes, this is a goblin. And obviously there'll be various other different types of monsters like the Nilbog and stuff like that, which are essentially like a goblin with like a bit of extra funk rubbed on it. But by and large, a goblin is a goblin. And pretty much same for most other races, trolls, orcs, bugbears, stuff like that. They tend to have variations printed in the book. And 4th edition was particularly famous for this. And 5th edition's carried it on a bit where you'll get a basic goblin stat. And then you'll get like a goblin berserker or you'll get a goblin shaman or something like that. And you'll get a a separate stat block for it. Which has always seemed like a bit of a space filler to my mind. But I suppose that's neither here nor there for this episode. So what I mean when I say collective terms. Well if we look back at sort of mythology and ancient legends we find that even though ostensibly using the same words you know like troll or orc or goblin or fairy they often refer to very different creatures despite using the same word and in fact with some of creatures like trolls there's even a lot of debate about where the word originated from and what it actually meant and we've talked about this in previous episodes on monsters where we've been dealing with more historically inspired monsters like red caps and stuff like that but obviously the people back in those days when they were sort of telling these myths round a fire and stuff like that they didn't have a handy AD&D monster manual that they could point at even if somehow they were able to read back in the days of yore and they had access to one of the few illuminated bestiaries that were knocking around in the sort of medieval time and stuff like that, then most of those books were pretty much speculative works of fiction, often with a second or third hand source material in it that was barely, if at all, understood by the people who were doing the copying and often the writer themselves just sort of went on half-remembered accounts that other people had told them rather than anything they'd actually seen by their own eyes. And as we know from like uh, witnesses giving statements at crime scenes and stuff like that, even if you've got someone who's ostensibly seen an event happen in front of them, it's very easy for misinterpretations, error and misrememberings to creep in. So it's hardly surprising that these 
bestiaries dealing with often fictional creatures weren't exactly all singing from the same hymn sheet. So you might be saying, all right, John, yeah, I take your point. Uh, medieval bestiaries, little bit hit and miss. But what does this have to do with my D&D game? Well, first of all, it's not actually a bad thing as far as your D&D game is concerned. It can actually be a real benefit to you. Now, I'm sure you've often heard people sort of bemoaning the fact that they've got a game where there's, they've got experienced players in the game who are familiar with every monster. They've read every monster manual going. They can quote chapter and verse, the hit dice, specific strengths and weaknesses of certain monsters without even breaking a sweat. And GMs will often be asking advice on how to keep their game fresh or how to tweak the monsters so that these well-read players aren't advertently or inadvertently metagaming and using knowledge that they wouldn't have or their character wouldn't have to make the game easier for themselves. And they might not be doing it deliberately. Let's face it, if you know a lot of information about the already existing monsters in a game, it's very difficult not to at least subconsciously act on that information, even if you do try and role-play your character as potentially not knowing it. Well, one of the advantages of having these collective terms is it means that you can use a variety of different monsters all with the same label. So let's just pick a really obvious example. Let's say, and this is something I do a little bit in my Smoke and Snow game. Let's say, for instance, you decide that in your campaign world, all green skins, all goblinoids, all of that sort of substrata of monster, whether it be goblins, orcs, bugbears, trolls, ogres, whatever, are all known as trolls. Now, this is not too unrealistic, because obviously your average sort of dung farmer in your D&D farmstead isn't going to have the D&D monster manual there when they get attacked by some huge clawed and fanged thing in the night and narrowly escape with only their prized turnip as their remaining possession. They're not going to quickly pull out their monster manual from their backpack, look at it and go, oh my god, I think it was a, a five-hit dice troll with regeneration that attacked me. No, they're just going to be like, oh, it was some bloody horrible thing with claws and teeth that loomed up out of the darkness and uh, devoured my prize goat Bessie or something like that and if that, then someone else says oh sounds like it's a troll chances are the person's going to go oh yeah that must be what it would be yeah definitely a troll and lots of different things could be characterized under the same sort of auspices but as I say, that's a good thing because it allows you as a GM the flexibility to use a lot of different monsters under that same label. So sort of just sort of like obfuscating a little the actual monster that's going to be faced without you really having to do any reskinning or anything like that at all. So let and as this happens a few more times with your players, they'll get used to the fact that just because the local villager is like, oh, there's a troll menace in my farm, they can't rely on the fact it's going to be a troll in terms of the stats that you would get in the D&D monster manual. So let's say, for instance, they, they go out to deal with the trolls that are menacing this farm, and you as a GM know that it's actually a small band of 15 orcs in terms of stats that are menacing the farm, 
But again, the, the farmers don't know that. They just know there's these horrible, green-skinned, grimy, dirty creatures with tusks and claws that are attacking them. So the players go romping out to deal with them. They might be quite surprised to find that instead of the one or two lumbering D&D typical trolls they're expecting, there's actually this small group of orcs or hobgoblins that will require very different tactics to defeat. This method also rewards the player characters who do a little bit of research and a little bit of careful planning, which is something I'm a big fan of in old school games because they tend to be a little bit more on the deadly side. So if before you get into a combat or you start really roughing things up, you want to do a little bit of research, find out what sort of creatures you're likely to be facing, work out if there's any way you can tip the the uh, sequence of events in your favours? Is there any way you can take them out whilst avoiding a sort of knockdown, throw-out combat? Because, let's face it, the more you get into a combat, the more likely you are to get killed. And obviously, combat's like a, more, a really exciting, fun part of the game. But in terms of the survivability of your character, sometimes, you know, a little bit of careful planning and prep can pay dividends. And using these collective terms rewards the careful prepper. So if they do a little bit of investigation around the farm where these trolls, in inverted commas, were last seen and they find a number of clawed footprints, but they're only sort of like the size of like a human footprint or slightly bigger, then immediately might start them thinking, oh, well, it's obviously not like your standard like D&D troll because they would have massive feet. Perhaps they question the farmer a little more closely and they find out there was like a big group of them and they were using crude metal weapons. And they might think, oh, well, that's not really like a troll at all. And the more they research it, the more they'll get close to finding out what this creature actually is in terms of its stats and also how best they can go about defeating it. And finally, a, another benefit of having your NPCs, your farmers, your villagers, etc. in your D&D game refer to groups of monsters by these sort of generic collective terms is that it also gives you an opportunity if you, say, buy a book and it's got like an interesting new like troll variant in it or an interesting new orc variant in it or whatever, you can just slide that straight into your game without worrying about having to justify, oh, well, where's this type of troll been? Oh, this isn't a normal troll. What's going on with this? You don't really have to justify it because the players will already be used to the fact that when a villager says a troll, it could mean any number of potentially different creatures. So you sliding in an extra one from a new supplement or something like that isn't really going to seem like a huge break in consistency or immersion of the game. And in fact, this is something I did recently in our session prior to the last one of Smoke and Snow. We ended with the player characters being confronted by a group of trolls rising up out of the water. Between that game and the next game where the confrontation happened, Gavin Norman of Necrotic Gnome released his stats for sort of Dolmenwood versions of trolls to Patreon backers. I got hold of them and because I've kept trolls quite vague in my game and they've referred to a number of different stat blocks I was able to slide these Dolmenwood trolls in with no real harm and hopefully it was a more interesting encounter for the players giving them a little bit more variety. So there you go I hope you've enjoyed listening to me ramble about why I think collective terms for monsters 
are a good thing in D&D. If you've got anything to say about this particular topic, do you love collective terms? Do you hate it? Do you like to know exactly what type of monsters you're facing? Or do you like to preserve that mystique? Whatever you want to say about it, you can get in touch by dropping us a voicemail either on SpeakPipe or Anchor, link in the description of this show, or you can send us an email to rddrpgpodcast at gmail.com. Until we see you again, take care, stay safe, and whatever you're playing, have fun.